You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to thank you for engaging in that project. Uh, What a wonderful gift to uh, our church and to our community. I also want to thank you, by the way, for your warmth and interest in our son's graduation uh, last Sunday. Ann and I went back to New Hampshire, had a great time, and I can't tell you how moved I was by the fact someone told me you all clapped when you heard that uh, for our son. I just want to thank you for that love and affection. We have a lot of graduations going on these days. Uh, University of Washington now, many of you are attending graduations. Graduation is a celebration of accomplishments. Uh, and we have a lot to celebrate as we look back at the last... Uh, uh, seven weeks uh, between Easter and Pentecost as we think about our Love Your Neighborhood project. But a neighborhood is, a a, a graduation is also a commencement, right? We call it a commencement. It's a beginning. It's just the beginning. You could have thought of uh, the three years that Jesus spent with his disciples as sort of their training, and there's some accomplishments associated with that as they have learned a lot about the good news. But then on Pentecost, there's a commencement, isn't there? There's the beginning, because this is when it really breaks open. This is when the church, as we say, leaves the building. And it goes out in a way that's not programmatic, that's not structured, that's organic and spirit-inspired. And so there is this invitation for us now to commence a new way of being the church, new way of being in relationship with one another and in relationship with the people uh, in whose lives God has placed us. Now, as the church moves out, doing this work of witnessing to Jesus Christ, of loving its neighborhood, there are questions that arise, and there will be for you too. People will ask you questions. Your neighbors will ask you uh, questions. One of the most penetrating questions I think that they will ask you is this question. Who are you? It's a question that um, suggests the best uh, of intention and mission. Like, who are you that you, would, that you would love me in this way? But it's also a question that can come across as a challenge. Who are you? It's an interesting question. It's an awkward question. And it's the question with which we have to wrestle this morning. Not only because we come to Pentecost and reflect on what it means to be the church, but also become, because we come to a passage of Scripture where this is the question that is asked of the disciples. They have come now from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria, and they find themselves at the ends of the earth. They're in Ephesus now. And they come face to face with a, a strange culture. Ephesus is a place infatuated with magic, amulets. Uh, the Ephesus grammata, the magic words of Ephesus, were famous. And here the church comes face to face with a spiritual reality, with evil itself, with a force of destructiveness. And you and I will come face to face with the same realities. And when we do, we will be asked the question, who are you in the face of this darkness? What will your answer be? Well, we get some help this morning from Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. If you're able, I would invite you to uh, stand with me and let's read this strange incident in the life of the early church. You found that on page 903 of the Pew Bible. It's Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, 
so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. (laughs) This is a really strange text. Uh, If you don't think so, you weren't paying attention as you were reading. This is just a bizarre, this is just a bizarre story, right? I mean, we got handkerchiefs that heal people. We got evil spirits. We've got Jewish exorcists. We've got violence. We've got naked men. Uh, we've got people burning books and praising Jesus. I mean, you don't even get the stuff on daytime TV anymore, right? I'm wondering if uh, David, if Bob is giving this to our kids this morning and they have, they pull out the little figures out of the box and uh, try to make some sense of this story uh, for our children. I'm hoping not. But I do think there's some meaning in it for us. Because at the center of this bizarre encounter is a profound question that's timeless. Who are you? Who are you? There are these seven guys. They're Jewish exorcists. They're itinerant. They've come into town claiming that they are the seven sons of some high priest named Sceva. They're probably fairly well known for their magic. And uh, they come across a man who's very ill. He's demon-possessed, Luke tells us. And here's what they say. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And then there's an awkward silence. Because the demon doesn't go away. And unfortunately for them, he's able to speak. And so here's what he says. Well, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who the heck are you? And they don't have an answer to this question. There's a stifling silence. See, these spirits or this spirit is doing a full body spiritual scan on these seven men looking for substance they're going from head to toe their spiritual life and they're looking for something that matters to them 
And they're not finding much. Oh yeah, there's a lot of drama, the fancy words and big names. But what about the substance? What about real spiritual substance? As they look at these guys, the spirits are saying, you know, are you a threat to me? Or are you my next target? Is Jesus your Lord? Or are you going to be my lunch? And these seven begin to see it in the man's face. And I don't know how this works, but he, you know, this is kind of Hulk moment with his shirt starts to tear and this guy just jumps them. And whereas this story began with one wounded person, it will end now tragically with eight all on the run. Remember when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to his disciples and he says, one day, some of you are going to come before me and you're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did not I cast out demons in your name? And I'm going to have to look at some of you and say, yeah, but I never knew you. That's the full body scan, the full spiritual scan that Jesus doesn't want to have to offer. I think that Luke remembers Jesus saying that, and I think there's a moment in Luke and maybe in the, 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 the minds of all the followers of Jesus in Ephesus where they go, that verse finally makes sense to me. Because here are some people who are trying to cast out demons, and they're using the name of Jesus. But even the demons know what Jesus knows. And that's that these seven don't know Jesus. And it's because of that they can't answer the question. Who are you? Well, I want to look at why that is. First, why the seven sons of Sceva cannot answer the question. And then secondly, why the Apostle Paul could. And then finally, I want to talk with you about your answer. First, why the seven sons of Sceva cannot answer this question. I got to say, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, even for me, it's an unwelcome question. If you ask me, George, who are you? I, I think I would begin with trite. It's a good first option. I'd say something like, good, fine, thanks. How are you? And then when you realize I'm not answering your question at all, then I begin to have to do the sifting process where I'm sifting through all the possible true answers about myself that I'd be willing to disclose to you, right? Well, I'm a guy. I live in Seattle. No dog. Uh, I run. Um, Red Sox fan. Um, I'm married. Um, I'm not the perfect husband, but nobody is, right? No one's perfect. I mean, I, so I, if I look into your eyes, though, and I hear you say, dude, and I can tell you really want to know, you really want to know who I am, then I've got two choices. Right. One choice is, I can lie. I can try to deceive you. The other choice is, I can try to distract you. Hey, how about those Red Sox? Do you know they had the worst start in their history, and they're now two games ahead of the Yankees on top? Let me hear your amen. <laughs> Seattle's doing well, too. The problem with these seven sons is that they recognize there is something within them that is deeply troubling. 
It's their brokenness. It's that same something that is inside of me. It's that same something, dare I say, that is inside of you. The scripture says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We're all lost. Now, the problem with these seven sons is that they try to manage their brokenness. Their hope is that they can do something with it that would be healing, that would be powerful. See, I, I think they're not even, I think they're not even asking uh, the right question. Now, let me say two things about these seven sons. First of all, they don't face their brokenness. And secondly, they're managing their brokenness. See, they don't face their brokenness. I think they're not dealing with the question that's being asked, who are you? I think they have substituted for that question a question that seems deceptively similar but is a world apart. And that's the question, who do I want to be? Now, I can live with that question uh, any day of the week. Who do I want to be? Oh, I want to be good. I want to be healthy. I want to be secure. I want to be happy. I want to be competent. I want to be smart. Um, all of these things. I want to be like you and you and you. And that's an easy question for me to answer. And that's the question that the seven sons of Sceva are asking. Because you know what? I don't even think they are seven sons of Sceva. The historians tell us we've got very good records of who the high priests were in Jerusalem. By the way, we're nowhere near Jerusalem. We're in Ephesus, Turkey. And, and the list of the high priests in Jerusalem does not include any name anywhere similar to Sceva. And I think that these seven guys have come into Ephesus knowing that the Ephesians admire magic and that there is a mystique about the Jewish people, that they have an unspoken name that's got secret powers and that the high priest would know that name because he gets to speak it once a year in the temple. And so they have taken on the persona of the high priest's family this is who they want to be. They want to be people with power. They want to be people who make a difference in the world. They want to be influencers, healers. They want to be good to their neighbors. And so they take on this persona of power. Oh, and they even trade off the cachet of the Apostle Paul. They don't know Paul. They don't know his message. But they, I guess they've heard he's got a reputation in town. Paul's been there for a couple of years teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus, and apparently spectacular things are happening. So they go, well, we adjure you by the name of Jesus that this guy Paul preaches. See how many generations away from them relationship with Jesus is. They don't know Jesus. And see, they don't face their brokenness. They, they don't work with the question, who am I? They can't. They can only work with the question, well, who do I want to be? That's the first thing about them. The second is that they manage their brokenness. They manage it. They're trying to get from who I don't want to know that I am to who I want to be with shortcuts. And that's what magic is. That's what magic is all about. It's, it's the art of imitation. Of trying to make you think that I am who I want to be. It's sleight of hand. We call it the art of magic. The artifice of magic. It's just a shortcut. It doesn't deal with the substance of my brokenness, it just tries to manage it. Move things around. Little hocus pocus, little smoke and mirrors. See, I, I don't think for a moment that there are many of us here who are literally trading in potions and dark arts. But all of us are magicians. Every single one of us. If magic is the art of imitation and taking shortcuts, 
to alleviate the pain and brokenness of our lives. We're all magicians. We all have talismans that help us grab onto an identity, that help us feel loved, that help us with a sense of importance in our life. Lacking an identity, we will shortcut to the approval of our peers, our peer group. What do they think about us? Lacking a sense that we should feel love. We might shortcut that we are love. We might shortcut to pornography. Maybe just a moment of intimacy. Lacking a sense of importance in our lives. We might make sure we spend a couple of extra hours at the work. Or that we stay on our Blackberry. Because this is who we know, how we know that we're important. It's all about magic and shortcuts. And avoidance of the core question. Who are you? When they ask this question, uh, the spirits of these seven sons, what they're saying is, I don't recognize your authority. You know, I hear your fancy words. I see you raving your hands around. And I see the way you have shaped your whole life around this imitation business. But when I look at you, you got nothing. Paul, Paul, yes. Jesus, yes. But you got nothing. They don't recognize any spiritual substance in their lives. See, you and I may be able to fool others. We may be able to fool ourselves. But when we come face to face with something truly powerful and destructive in that moment, unless there's substance, the sleight of hand comes to an end. And it does for these seven. They can't answer the question. Well, uh, it, that's why they can't answer the question. It's because they're managing their brokenness. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? You see, he's got an answer. The Apostle Paul, the Spirit himself says, well, if I were talking to Paul, then it would be different because he'd have an answer to my question. Who are you? I wouldn't even have to ask the question because Paul knows who he is and we know who he is. There's a kind of a reality to Paul's life that's impenetrable that from which we would flee even if you sent us his hanky. Why? Wouldn't you like to know why Paul can answer this question? In a phrase, I'd say it this way. It's because he owns his brokenness. And he owns it in relationship to Jesus Christ. He owns his brokenness. And he holds it in relationship with Jesus Christ. See, Paul is as lost as I am. He's as lost as you are. He knows that he's so wounded that he'll never be able to overcome his failure. But one day, Jesus Christ came to him and assured Paul that he knows all about that. He knows all about Paul. He knows him. He loves him. And he embraces him just as he is. And Paul says, okay, you're on. I want to know who you are. I want to know everything about you. I want my life to be about knowing you. I can just leave everything else behind and know you. And so doing know who I am. Let me see if I can say it this way. These seven, here's the contrast. These seven name the power but relate to the pain. Paul names his pain but relates to the power. Do you see that? See, see, for the, for the, for the seven sons, they're naming the power. They've got this incantation. Jesus to them is just a name. Jesus, it's a powerful name. Let me use it on you. It's magic. And what they, uh, what they 
relate to, though, is their pain, their brokenness. They're going to manage it. They're going to hold the magic wand over its head and hope it gets better. That's their preoccupation. Paul is the opposite. He names his pain. He, 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 he confesses it. He says, I'm broken. I'm broken. Failure. Sinful. Rebellion. Hurting. Wounded. He names it, but he relates to the power. He knows Jesus. And he knows Jesus knows him. And his life is about that relationship. Apostle Paul, you just... You don't get this insight here, but if you read his letters, you begin to see it. He says to Timothy, his protege, his protege, he'd like to be respected by him, but he says, I am the worst of sinners. This is the great Apostle Paul talking to you now. He's saying to you, I am the worst of sinners. I'm worse than you, he says. And and then when he thinks about his spiritual resume, all of the ways in which he tried to become the person that he wanted to be, he says, I'm just setting it all aside now. He says, you know, all the credentials, the religion, the zeal, my own righteousness, it's all just a waste compared to knowing Jesus. He's my righteousness. And Paul says, I don't, I don't have to hide this from anybody now. In fact, because the more I discover the depth of my brokenness, the more it pushes me into relationship with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he says to the Corinthians, I boast gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He says, whenever I'm weak, then I'm strong. Power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, there was a church in Corinth and they were so messed up. It was just, you, you go, is this the church of Jesus Christ? I mean, they had incest, they had lawsuits, and even the religious leaders of the church were fractured. Some of them were saying, you know, I, I belong to Apollos. I think his program is the right program for the church. Others are saying, well, I belong to Cephas or Peter. I think he's got the right set of ideas. He knows where we need to go. And others are saying, I belong to Paul. And Paul's saying, I am so glad that I didn't baptize any of you. Were you baptized into Paul or Peter or Apollos? Oh, don't forget, this is all just about knowing Jesus. I'm so glad that when I came to you, I didn't come with great preaching, powerful wisdom, prescriptions and techniques and methods to give you. I'm so glad that when I came, I came in weakness, knowing nothing among you except Jesus. And, and I love this. He says, if I'd have done otherwise, <clears throat> I would have emptied the cross of Christ of its power. That's 1 Corinthians two seventeen. See, what's, how can we empty the cross of Christ of its power? The only way we can do that is by not bringing him our brokenness. As long as you and I bring Jesus our brokenness, the cross has power. It's at the cross that God in Christ has stepped into our brokenness. There he is, crucified, judged, dead, buried for us. So that in Jesus, God might give us his wholeness, his fullness, his peace, his life. That's, that's power. God had said it to the Israelites in Exodus 15, millennia earlier, when he had said, I am the Lord who heals you. And the cross is how he does it. 
Back to that phrase that I read earlier from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. But even Isaiah in the 8th century, 800 years before Jesus comes, can say, the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's how we find our way home. And there are no shortcuts. The path is the cross. Don't empty the cross of its power. Who are you? If, if someone had asked Paul in this moment in Ephesus who he was, here's his answer. I think he'd say, I'm nothing. I don't mind telling you, I'm nothing. I got nothing. That's just, I'm nothing. But I do have this. Jesus Christ knows me. And I know him. And that's everything. So what about your answer? Are you willing to own your brokenness? In relationship to Jesus. Who are you? I think Luke is putting this uh, question to us very intentionally. He doesn't have to tell us this story. It's a little sidebar conversation in the history of the church. And yet, he wants you to know in verse 17 that this question is overheard by the followers of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. They overhear this incident. When it becomes known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone is awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. They're coming to know Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. If you look at the grammar of verse 18, the implication here is that the believers in Ephesus, though they believed in Jesus and they had the name of Jesus, they said, yeah, it's, it's, this faith is about Jesus. He's Lord. They did not have the power yet because they were still trading in magic. It's the perfect tense here when it says also many of those should be had become believers. They had previously become believers. But now after this incident with the seven sons of Sceva, they start confessing. They start openly saying, hey, we're broken, too. And, and they say, we don't need our, our magic books anymore. Our tricks and short circuits and methods and techniques. We just need Jesus and we have him. And so they take their books and they throw them in a pile. And though they're very valuable books, they're worthless to them. They're just going to burn them. I know you and I wish, wish that we're a shortcut to get us from who, who, the pain of where we are right now to who we want to be. One of our pastors, Steve Eldy, told me recently he, he, he was doing, we had a, uh, we had a suicide. A young adult, 26 years old, killed himself at home. Family discovered. And, um, you know, Steve did the memorial service for him and you never want to have to be there. And looking at this family, he said, I, I just wish that I had a magic wand that I could reach out and touch you and make it better. But there is no such wand. That's not the way Jesus works in our lives. But don't you wish that there were, I mean, don't you wish that there were just a magic wand that could reach out and touch our broken marriages, touch our illnesses, touch our financial pain? But there isn't. And if we go after one, we're going to end up wounded and naked. There's something so much more important than that. There's a person, Jesus Christ. In 1988, the Soviet Union, aware that they had a huge problem with alcohol addiction in Russia, sent what they called narcologists. I just love the Soviets. Narcologists were people who specialize in addiction to the United States. 
And they visited a number of uh, uh, hospitals and programs, among them Alcoholics Anonymous. They sat in AA meetings and they interviewed members. And what they saw as the weeks went on was remarkable. They saw men and women getting better. They saw a power at work in their lives that they couldn't explain. And they said, this is it. This is what we need for our alcoholics back home. We see people that are recovering. We want you to teach us how to do this in Russia. And they said this to one of the facilitators of the meeting. And she says back, well, um, that's what we've been doing with you tonight as you sit in this group. You see, you learn how to be like they are only by being like they are. But, uh, the Soviets sputtered, surely there must be something you could share with us, a technique, a certain kind of approach, some kind of trick that would make all this a little easier. No, came the reply. What you see in this room, what you want to take home with you, is spirituality. And if there's one thing that all alcoholics discover, it's that there are no shortcuts to spirituality. It's a relationship. Who are you? Let me give you five diagnostic questions that might help you answer the big one as you reflect on this text this week. Five questions. I'm just going to read them to you. First one is this. Why do I prefer to pretend that my life is better than it is? Why is that so important to me? Why do I prefer to pretend that my life is better than it is? Two. Is Jesus more a name to know or a friend to love for you? Is he more a name to know or a friend to love? Three, where do you put more energy? Trying to be who you want to be or knowing Jesus? Where do you put more energy? Four, where do I take shortcuts to avoid the pain and weakness in my life? Where do I take shortcuts to avoid the pain and weakness in my life? Five, if Jesus doesn't immediately take my pain away, what would healing look like? Well, I realize many of us are coming to church this morning with this question, who are we? We're asking it about our church. We're concerned about University Presbyterian Church, and we're asking, who is UPC? Whether you are closely connected to our youth ministry or see it from a distance, you know that there's been some struggle and pain there, and it's real. And you um, may find that this is really disturbing and that this is, like me, an embarrassment to us, the church. I just wish we weren't here. Uh, It seems as though we are so much less healthy than we realized It didn't seem like we could get to a place of this pain and brokenness and woundedness. But I want to say something to you about this. I want to be really clear. My my biggest fear is that I think that there are some of us who might think that by dismissing a pastor, we would find health. My biggest fear would be that some of us might think that by keeping a pastor, we would find health. There are no shortcuts. You and I will only find health if and only if and to the extent that we are able to confess we are broken people. 
We need healing and we need a Savior. And I can't help but wondering whether from time to time God brings a church to its knees in order to release it from its exaggerated sense of who it is and to remind it that, yes, it too does need a Savior. And this is a very public and painful reminder. But friends, this is the church that our neighbors desperately need to see. I don't know why it is that so many of us work so hard to project a perfect or perfected image. My life's together. I got perfect kids. I got a whole family. Uh, my marriage is great. I don't know why it is that so many of our churches want to project the image of perfection through slick graphics or well-organized worship services. It just runs opposite to the confession of the Apostle Paul and, and the reality that we, not, we are needing people. And our neighborhood needs to see a church that doesn't come in and say, hey, our lives are all put together. Our neighborhood needs to see a church that is authentic and real and says, we know who we are. We're broken people, but we know who Jesus is and he's among us and he's with you also. You know, a lot of people are reading a blog right now. One of our members after this um, town hall put together a blog. And it's a very painful blog. It's hard for me to read. There's a lot of tough stuff that's in there about YMM, youth ministry here, and about UPC. Um, but i got to say this. There is something profoundly hopeful in that blog for me. To know that I'm a part of a community where people love this church so much. But frankly, our young adults are so committed to this church, they're willing to fight for its soul. And they're doing that. We, we trust each other so much that we can be deeply honest about our brokenness, about our fears, about our concerns, about our sadness. And we can do so in the presence of Jesus Christ with a spirit of love and respect and hopefulness. A lot of people are reading this blog. Uh, 13,000 hits last time uh, I, I knew. That was before the weekend. A lot of our neighbors are reading this. In fact, I just want to briefly finally tell you one story about um, a young adult who is in our virtual social network. He's a Facebook friend of the, one of you. And he saw on uh, your Facebook page a post with a link to this blog and, and went started reading this blog. Now, this is a person who... Uh, doesn't like church, has hated, has kept it at arm's length, the dogmas, the bureaucracy, the hierarchy. And yet as he's reading these letters that you are writing to one another, he's saying there's something different here. And rather than pushing him away, it is inviting him in. There was a Facebook uh, post that he put on his own Facebook that says, you know, there's something different about University Presbyterian Church. And I think I'm going to check it out. This is the power of a people who are willing to acknowledge publicly that we are broken. But what holds us together is Jesus Christ himself. This is the miracle of Pentecost. We see it again and again and again. And we see it in Ephesus. And I believe we'll see it today. And so the words of the, of, uh, the historian Luke are appropriate then as they are now. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Let us pray. Dear Jesus... Bring us to our knees. Give us the courage and the freedom to acknowledge the depth of our brokenness. Give us the courage and the freedom to articulate that depth publicly. In appropriate places, in appropriate ways, help us to give up the pretenses of our lives. Help us to, 
to burn the instruction manuals we were using with all the shortcuts and to begin to learn to live in the presence of your love with you, to know you, to press into who you are and so discover who we are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.